Hi, this is 10 Minutes to Better Patient Communication from Health Communication Partners. I'm Dr. Anne-Marie Liebel. Examining and addressing unconscious or implicit bias has become an important goal for many in the healthcare community. Everyone has such biases, and their consequences are significant. But addressing bias is slow and difficult work, and I can say that because I've been involved in this work for years. Right now, I'm helping the folks at Cleveland Clinic in addressing bias. So, I thought it would be a good time to replay this episode, where I talk about some of what I've learned over the years about people's fears around addressing bias. You'll learn about people's personal fears, but also people's concerns about organizations and institutions when it comes to discussing unconscious or implicit bias. In addition to what I share with you at the end of this episode, if you would like support in addressing implicit or unconscious bias in your organization, remember I have an audiobook bundle of resources ready for you to use right now. Immediate download on healthcommunicationpartners.com. Welcome to 10 Minutes to Better Patient Communication with Dr. Anne-Marie Liebel. Providing you with tips and strategies you can use to improve your patient engagement. Unconscious bias is something everyone has. An author from the Royal College of Surgeons recently described in BMJ that unconscious bias involves placing people in a, quote, category when we first meet them. It is something, the author says, we do, quote, by mistake, without thinking, unconsciously. And that's fine. That's human nature. But the question is what we do with that, end quote. Similarly, a recent editorial in the Journal of Gerontological Nursing indicates that unconscious bias is, quote, a universal trait and important for survival, and that even educated individuals with the best intentions can display it. As much as bias may be human nature or a universal trait, it is an obstacle, a blind spot, with some serious consequences. Unconscious bias on the part of healthcare providers has been linked to errors in clinical decision-making. Numerous studies have also indicated how this bias exists within health professions. As a result, models, guidance, theoretical orientations have been developed to address bias and stereotyping. Some specializations and programs have made a goal of diversity and equity in the workplace. But getting down to the work of actually addressing unconscious bias can make people nervous. And some of that, I argue, is with good reason. It's important to acknowledge this so we can take appropriate steps, whether we're talking about our own unconscious biases or if it's our job to facilitate others in talking about theirs. And that's what this episode is about. I started talking about unconscious bias more than a dozen years ago, starting with my own. For a decade now, I've also been leading conversations with others about examining our biases and assumptions as practitioners. It is a long, difficult, entirely worthwhile journey. Here is some what I have learned about why this process can make us uncomfortable and some starting steps. I have found people's fears or doubts around addressing bias and stereotypes can cluster into two groups. One, people's personal doubts and fears, and two, people's fears pertaining to organizations, institutions, or systems. And I'll briefly describe these now. In terms of personal doubts and fears, there's three of them. One, I'm already thinking about this. 
When I first began the process of confronting my own biases, I had already been teaching for several years. I remember thinking, and sometimes saying, things like, I haven't not been thinking about bias and prejudice all this time. I work hard. I care about all my students. A 2011 JAMA editorial opens with a similar sentiment. Quote, the evidence that physician behavior and decision-making may contribute to racial inequalities in healthcare is difficult to reconcile with the fact that most physicians are genuinely motivated to provide good care to all their patients. As thoughtful, well-educated people who take our professional commitment seriously, we likely have good reasons for thinking we've already done our best to understand the communities we work with and how we do that work. 2. Don't tell me I've been doing it wrong. No, we don't like the idea of others criticizing us. Conversations about unconscious bias can conjure fears of being attacked. They certainly did for me. It can feel like some sort of a personal showdown, as if one party is wrong and the other right. Similarly, most of us want to avoid feelings of awkwardness or pain. What might come from looking hard at ourselves, or at the communities we come from, and the histories of those communities. All of this is potentially involved with conversations about bias and stereotypes. 3. That's just the way it is. The process of facing biases or stereotypes is risky business. So is any threat to the status quo. Wherever we are as individuals in the social hierarchy, it can be threatening to acknowledge that we live and participate in various networks and systems geared to work better for some people than for others, and that we have a place in maintaining these. Now, these networks and systems can be large-scale, like schools, health systems, carceral systems, the open market. They may be smaller-scale or local, like neighborhoods, online communities, or voting precincts. But acknowledging these contextual realities may show us things we'd rather not say, or make us aware there's more responsibility on our shoulders than we thought. Concerns about organizational commitments. One of them I call a trust issue. When I began my doctoral program, there was an explicit agreement that part of this process involved my examination of my assumptions and beliefs, including assumptions I held about the communities I was serving. I didn't fully understand what that meant at the time, but I believed in the program and in the people in it. I trusted that these experiences would reward my willingness to do this work, and for the most part, that was true. I know this is not always the case. This kind of work can mean our taking a close look at the relationships we have to the various organizations and institutions of which we're a part, and deciding in whom, or in what, we're willing to place our trust. Conflict will happen. Examining our biases and assumptions is intensely personal. It invites vulnerability. And it's sometimes done alongside colleagues or in front of someone in a supervisory position. I had some very patient and skillful instructors and classmates who had been facing their own assumptions for years before I did. They certainly helped when I started this process, but some of my classmates and I did argue. My students argued among themselves. Some argued with me. Those who lead groups in examining biases need to be able to facilitate and explore, and not shut down, such tense interactions because they will happen. If, 
learners are committed to fronting their assumptions and examining them, and not just pretending to do these things. Another organizational concern I call being able to check the box. Addressing our own biases and stereotypes is not something we can ever get right. We don't land. We don't arrive. We don't get the good grade. We're not often recognized or rewarded for this in our organizations. On the contrary, we may be asked to come to some sort of conclusion about ourselves or to fill out the survey or to pronounce ourselves this or that kind of person, rather than being able to be tentative and in process. And lastly, fears about organizational commitment and support. It's often unclear what shifts in ourselves have to do with shifts in organizational culture. Beyond asking individuals to address their own biases, what's being done at an organizational level to address bias and stereotypes in the organization, in its existing systems and processes. For instance, if a learner is asked to examine his or her unconscious bias as part of a class or a quality initiative, it can't just stop there. What parallel action is happening at an institutional level? Additionally, how is that learner being protected, supported, and not left feeling exposed? If these concerns are not taken seriously, we may run the risk of doing more harm. We cannot continue to expect the solutions to deep-seated systemic problems to be provided by those least served by these same systems. In other words, the heavy lifting shouldn't be done by those already carrying disproportionate burdens. I've been talking about the challenges I have come to know as part of the work of addressing unconscious bias, but because it is difficult, does not mean we turn away. So what can you do? Well, be conscious of the difficulties inherent in this work. That means, in part, being patient with yourself and with others. If you're in a group, I recommend collecting readings and videos as a way to anchor discussions and provide a bit of emotional breathing room. It also means marshalling real institutional support and doing some systems-level thinking. Take a look at one structure or process in your organization that may be marginalizing certain groups, even unintentionally. Please join in this conversation. If you're listening on iTunes, go to Rate and Review. If you're listening at healthcommunicationpartners.com, please let me know your thoughts in the comment box. I read these. I'm Dr. Anne-Marie Liebel, and this has been 10 Minutes to Better Patient Communication. Thanks for listening to 10 Minutes to Better Patient Communication from Health Communication Partners, LLC. Find us at healthcommunicationpartners.com.